Hello, and welcome to this special budget edition of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast, by which we do not mean we are on sale or cut price or to be found at the bargain bin. At the local supermarket, regular listeners will know that this podcast, like a pyramid scheme, only adds value. But no, we are a budget edition because on Wednesday, which is yesterday for us and a little longer for you, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, delivered his second budget, that annual ritual where government deigns to tell us how much money we don't have will be spent on what things we don't need, whereafter it is criticised by the opposition who say that they would have spent much more and or better, evidence be damned, uh, or else they are praised by the opposition, in which case they ought really to be worrying. That is a cynic's take at any rate. Other viewpoints are available. Uh, we may, They may well even feature in this programme. I am Benjamin Mercer, resident cynic, reporter of Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by his IO partner Mike Smedley and Conservative Party peer, the Baroness Ros Oldman of Tottenham. So thank you both very much for joining me. There were then a, a number of pensions measures in the budget, so I thought we could touch on those. Inevitably, some of the rumoured measures were absent. Before we get on to the government's uh, proposed easing of the rules around pensions, and in particular defined contribution scheme investments, and the freezing of the lifetime allowance until 2026, I thought I'd begin by asking each of my guests for their key takeaways from Wednesday's budget. So, Mike, I think we'll kick off with you, if you like. Um, we'll perhaps touch on what was missing from the budget a bit later on. For now, what, if anything, in the budget most pleased you? Um, I think the I mean I think it was an interesting budget, obviously targeting you know targeting growth and, and getting the economy back on its feet and, and continuing support, which is sort of not not unexpected. I think obviously we got we got some hints of revenue raising, and we'll come back to, to the pensions bit of that. But generally, I don't know. It seemed it seemed to me to be pretty positive budget, recognising uh, you know, clearly we're going to have to balance the books at some point. Therefore, it's, it's it probably raises more questions in terms of what's going to come in future budgets to me as many as it answered. So, Ros, would you like to um, to pick up on that? Was there anything in particular in the budget that most pleased you? I think the fact that the, the Chancellor decided not to increase taxes at this time uh, is, is most welcome. Yes, there were freezes, which could be called stealth taxes, but it's not the time, you know, before we've even started properly recovering from the the last year to uh, stunt growth. So this was a, a budget for growth. I think that's right. Spending money is essential right now. Uh, but what I was really pleased about was the emphasis on building infrastructure, improving productivity, and using pension assets. At least there was a proper mention of that and, and plans to harness the power of pension money to help boost both a growth across the country and also the green growth agenda, which again, I believe is really important as we move forward. Excellent. In fact, that nicely preempts what I had earmarked for the first topic, in fact, which was investing in the economic recovery. We can touch in more detail on that proposed reform then of the laws around pension scheme investments. So there have been calls for some time for DC schemes in particular to be freed up to assist in the post-pandemic recovery. Uh, the government announced, among other measures, a consultation into whether certain costs within the charge cap are unduly limiting pension schemes' ability uh, to invest in a sufficiently broad range of assets. So, Raz, I noted from your six-point plan that you're in favour of this, and I gather from what you just said that you are in favour of this. So perhaps you, you're a good person to start with. Well, I mean, I really welcome the intention to ensure that pension fund assets can be used productively to boost the economy, to provide better returns, and to help the green growth agenda. But what I would stress is that, in my view, this should cover both defined benefit and defined contribution schemes. Indeed, there's far more money in our defined benefit system than there is currently, at least in the defined contribution arena. And 
at the moment, I think there is this assumption that all defined benefit schemes should give up on trying to get good investment returns and lock down into so-called low-risk assets, which means low-return assets. Uh, and that's going to make it more difficult to have enough money to pay the pensions in the long run than if we used those assets productively to both improve the performance of the economy in the longer term and also deliver better returns. Because, you know, I, I think I don't want to see pension assets, if you like, languishing in very low return opportunities. And that applies across the defined contribution and defined benefit space, as far as I'm concerned. I do think we need to revisit the uh, idea of daily pricing and instant liquidity for defined contribution schemes, because that doesn't really sit well with the very long-term and illiquid investment opportunities that would potentially be part of this boosting of the infrastructure and green growth agendas. Excellent. I think, I mean, from what I recall, some of the focus on DC is because it does have the more obvious regulatory hurdles to overcome when it comes to making some of these long-term investments, if I'm right about that. But obviously, you mentioned that it would be good to get DB schemes more involved as well. The reason they're not involved, I mean, is that a mindset thing or do they have their own sets of prohibitory regulations? I think there has been this trend to what I would call reckless conservatism in the defined benefit landscape. And we were dealing with this just recently in the pension schemes bill, uh, trying to ensure that at the very least open defined benefit schemes are not encouraged down this road of getting rid of higher, supposedly higher risk, but actually higher return as well assets uh, and moving into a position where they might be more likely to buy annuities, you know, and, and, and have assets that are far less volatile, because that was the direction of travel for the last few years, whereby regulators seem to have, in conjunction with consultants, driven trustees to put more and more money into gilts and fixed income high quality and the, the pension schemes have ended up competing with central banks who are printing money like there's no tomorrow and using that money to buy those same gilts and and possibly high quality fixed income assets which has had a double whammy by driving interest rates down ever lower and that of course means pension deficits increase, which then puts more pressure on employers and has suggested to trustees that, oh, well, we, we can't afford to take so much risk anymore, even though that's meaning that they can't necessarily achieve the returns they need either. So, you know, I, I think the opportunity in defined benefit schemes is being overlooked to some degree. Partly there's a function of overseas pension funds seeming to get better access to the attractive infrastructure projects that we've had over the last few years. And partly it's this very, very, I believe, overcautious attitude of trustees to what they perceive to be investment risk, which seems to me to be driven by short-term factors more than the long-term opportunities. You know, even a closed DB scheme won't mature for another 20 years or so on average. Mike, do you want to come in on this one? How do we resolve this paradox? And the government's obviously very keen to get schemes more involved. 
uh, in these kinds of investments. But as Ross has explained, there are a number of structural barriers to that. Is there an easy way of resolving the problem? I think it's a really interesting question. On, on the DB side for a moment, I don't think there are constraints that stop pension schemes investing in these things. There are, there are lots of examples of pension schemes using illiquid assets and, and, and cost is not a constraint provided it's it's the returns are met. So there aren't the formal restrictions there. But it's such I think a there's... tiny portion of their assets, that's the issue. Yeah, and I think I think the I think that in practice, it's as you say, Ros, the prevailing environment, and that includes regulators, um, legislation, successive governments, select committees, have prioritised effectively security of members' benefits built up over cost because that's always a trade-off. It's, it's very hard for Blake to blame trustees for being overly prudent when that's basically what everyone is telling them to do and, and what and what effectively they see they see government. And and it's not I, I don't have a particular view on whether that's right or wrong because clearly there are trade-offs you can invest for higher returns and that will bring more risk you know we'll see a number of people lose their pensions in the next year as their employer goes insolvent so you can sympathize with both perspectives my recommendation to the government has been that if you were to underpin these infrastructure projects by current gilt yields we are which we all recognize are exceptionally low so that it becomes an alternative a realistic alternative for pension schemes, you will either get the ultra low gilt yields that you would have to uh, accept in in the market if you were to be investing in gilts, and that's the worst case scenario, or you will get the upside from the attractive growth producing projects that this money could then be put towards. The government won't need to fund it directly, the pension assets will. If ultimately there is a failure of some of these projects, obviously they're not all going to do well, but the vast majority should do if they are planned carefully, then the pension scheme can share in the upside and help the employer to meet the liabilities without the same kind of downside risk that there might be without the gilt yield underpin that is like an insurance policy and in most cases wouldn't even expect to be required. I agree, Oz. I think there's certainly scope you can see. If pension schemes were basically offered an investment opportunity that was that, that was the best of both, then clearly they're going to take it. I think my honest view is I don't think there's a shortage of global capital to invest in these things. If that was available, um, I think you'd have lots of other investors, not just pension schemes, chasing those opportunities. I think the issue is whether government really wants to be issuing a load of guarantees you know, in relation to projects to, in order to secure the finance or whether that's the most cost-effective way of government of, of funding those things? Well, the problem is that this is not unrelated. And in the end, there are many of our DB schemes, and most particularly, of course, the local authority schemes, where the government has a direct responsibility for fixing the deficit anyway. So from the government's perspective, why on earth would you try to encourage overseas investors into successful projects when you could actually save yourself the long-term pension cost of not meeting the liabilities by offering specific UK-centric pension opportunities for these investments. And that would exclude overseas investors who wouldn't necessarily get the underpin. The underpin would be for domestic investors. There shouldn't be the same judgment as to whether you want a domestic investor or an overseas investor. Yes, there is plenty of global capital. Absolutely, you're right. But if we don't offer these opportunities to our domestic pension funds, then there is a risk, much greater risk, 
that the government is on the hook and taxpayers are on the hook for a number of these potentially deficit-ridden pension funds that will need to meet their liabilities one way or another. I mean, local authority schemes aren't even part of the Pension Protection Fund. So there is a direct government responsibility. BT scheme, there is a, a government underpin. You know, there are pockets of, of DB pensions where there is a government underpin anyway, but this way you help both the economy and the scheme to manage over the long term in a way that doesn't have the same downsides as a normal investment would do or replaces the guilt investments that they would otherwise be using the money for with no upside at all. I think I, I can see the case for public sector being different and that's then that's effectively then a central government you know decision around funding because you know you, you can as, as you know Ros, most public sector pensions are unfunded in the first place. I think private sector is a little bit different pensions because most sponsors are in a place now where they want to settle pension schemes as as our trustees that effectively they want to run them off you know as as securely as possible and costing them as little as possible but there's not the appetite to take risk if you sort of mean clearly if there are attractive investments that could be created that gave people a better return for less risk then then people are going to bite your hand off index linked guilts have negative yields oh they've had negative real yields for a long time yeah exactly But that means from the government's perspective and the pension scheme's perspective, how are you going to meet the liabilities if you can't get matching assets? You're going to need these projects that that can deliver inflation-linked returns from, say, 10 years out once they're built. Yeah, though you shouldn't forget the flip side of the uh, all this indexed gilts is that government borrowing costs are at record lows. That is the other. That is part of the equation as well, I think. Uh, and also that that has the unfortunate consequence, and that's part of the reason why I've always been so nervous about quantitative easing itself, of driving pension costs up artificially, but it's become a bit of a doom loop, it seems to me, with pension assets chasing guilt, government itself happy to take that, central banks then say we need more stimulus and buying more gilts in competition with the pension funds who are trying to fix the deficits caused by the previous fall in rates and rates falling further. We we have seen a bit of a backup in rates, which will help uh, to some degree. And while there is this appetite and opportunity for enormous amounts of money printing to take place with the central banks getting away with, if you like, market-wise, printing all the money to basically finance government spending, there is this opportunity for pension schemes as well to tack onto that. I think the government has been quantitatively easing as long as I've been alive. So whether it stops anytime soon. 2009 it started and that was meant to be a short-term experiment to be unwound (laughs) as soon as we uh, got through the emergency. And here we are. Friedman quote, isn't it? There is nothing so permanent as a temporary government agency. But um, fantastic. Well, we'll move on from that very interesting topic. There was one other thing I thought we'd pick up on from the budget before I turned it over to, to you to name the things that you wish you'd seen in there, which was, of course, the lifetime allowance. The much-discussed freeze of the lifetime allowance did, in fact, make it into the budget. It's been frozen until 2026. It's a move expected to raise a little bit of money, though not a huge amount in the context of all the money we've borrowed and will continue to borrow to meet all the rather exciting commitments. Uh, it was criticised by Hyman's Robertson partner, Chris Noon. He said it was a knee-jerk reaction. Back when the thing was just a rumour, Broadstone Technical Director David Brooks said it was fiddling with the periphery, which sounds vaguely inappropriate out of context. Uh, And LTP partner Sir Steve Webb pointed out that the uh, government's inconsistent policy with regards to the lifetime allowance, he asked whether 
heaven forfend the government was making it up as it goes along. Um, Mike, do you want to begin us on this one? Do I get the impression that the industry is not overwhelmingly impressed by this move? I think it was it was predictable. It wasn't surprising, and it was obviously well well trialed. Um, you know, as I describe it, the, the lifetime allowance has been um, has only been around for I forget what it is. You know, twelve fifteen years. It's been up and down like a yo yo already. There's a good track record of tinkering with it, so not surprising to see it again. And it does raise some revenue. I think probably what the industry feels about it is it, it's just the lack of certainty. You know, that's always I know it's very difficult in the political context, but the, the industry and individuals would always like to know what they're facing into on pensions and to help their planning, because you can't you can't change pension decisions at the, at the drop of a hat. Um, so I think that's really the concern is, well, what's next and what will happen again? But in isolation, um, we did some numbers. It was only due to increase half a percent this year anyway, because CPI was low. So I think in the first year, for someone that has to pay the extra tax because it's frozen, it turns into about four or five pound a month of pension that they, they will be um, worse off. So it's it's not a huge amount of money for the individual, but obviously over a period of time it makes up. And, and over the five years, it is quite significant because in the end, I think the Red Book in five years' time has got a 300 million saving. So it, it does mount up. Okay, so it, does, it is perhaps a little bit more impressive than the, the introduction I gave to it. Ross, I mean, do, you, do you want to come in on, on this one? Is, sure. is the move a, a welcome one? Does it raise enough money, do you think? I, I actually think it's, it's kind of irrelevant. I liked your periphery comment. Basically, you know, the lifetime allowance for me makes no sense. In a system where you limit the annual amount you can put into a pension, then having a, on top of that a lifetime allowance that penalises those who do well in their investments undermines the whole purpose of pensions as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I, I think also the um, comment that Mike made about up and down like a yo-yo, you know, th- this actually came in in 2005-06. It was one and a half million, then it went to 1.6, then it went to 1.8. Then in 2011, it went back to one and a half, then to one and a quarter million. Uh, and in 2016, it was cut to one million, but we were told at the time that it would increase each year by inflation. And here we are, not that long afterwards. And that promise is broken as well. So how on earth are people meant to make their plans? If you don't know how much you're planning for, you don't know whether you might want very high return investments or not, depending on how close or otherwise you are to the lifetime allowance, it makes it impossible to plan. But I think the other reason that uh, I find this whole lifetime allowance and indeed most of the pension allowances in need of urgent and radical root and branch surgery is that for the older or wealthiest people, this lifetime allowance is irrelevant because they've already got themselves protection at the much higher levels that already existed in the past. So it will affect the youngest and the less wealthy, those who are in the middle of their career and aspiring to build up a good pension. They're the ones that are being hit over the head. You know, whether you're Define contribution, which obviously means that you're worried about investing and being too successful, which is ridiculous when you're trying to build up a long term fund of money, or indeed for defined benefit schemes, where unfortunately the way the lifetime allowance rules work, it's driving people, doctors, for example, to retire early in their mid to late 50s, even because if they work longer, they tip over the lifetime limit and face a penal tax charge. Whereas if they take their pension soon and stop working, 
They actually avoid the tax. I mean, this is crazy stuff and, and needs to be, in my view, radically overhauled. We've got far too many different allowances, some of which conflict with each other. Uh, and it makes it impossible to plan your retirement savings over the long term if you don't even know what's going to happen to the rules either next year or in two or three years' time. How can you plan for the next 20 or 30 years? Mike, I wonder if you just want to finish us off on this topic. I mean, I've taken the point about uncertainty, of course. There is now, I suppose, six years of certainty unless they change their minds in the interim. But uh, is there a reason for this, what some might call flip-flopping around with the lifetime allowance? I mean, I know you said it does make a difference. Does it make enough of a difference between the points at which it makes a difference to make governments see cash at one moment and something else at some other? I think it's an easy target because uh, it's obviously... Now, a million pound pension pot is is sort of the upper end of people's wealth in any event, and it's a it's a sort of soft target because it's freezing. It's it's not indexing in the same way as the personal allowances, so people don't see an immediate cut; they see it gradually biting in over time. Um, so uh, you can you can see the attraction from a from a chancellor's point of view of tinkering with it. I think, you know, to be fair, we've had pension tax limits in at least the last forty years um, of some shape or form, and they have changed quite a lot. So. I think that the fact that they do change from time to time and generally have got more restrictive over that time, um, I think is difficult. And it, it does, all of that suggests that it's one direction of travel, that we're going to get more restrictions, not less, going forward, because that's been the history. I think one thing, I mean, you did ask this earlier, Benjamin, anything we thought was missing. Yeah. I think the one thing I th- was slightly disappointing was that it didn't tackle the sort of net pay anomaly of, of the difference between different DC schemes. Um, people missing tax relief, but obviously that costs the Chancellor money. So again, you can see why that's not a priority from a financial point of view. Absolutely. Well, that does then bring us on pretty much to the close of the programme. Ordinarily, what we do at this point is our always a pensions angle. But I thought because it is the budget, the budget is a little bit like Christmas. It's where you have an opportunity to go down your wish list, mm-hmm. compare it with what your family in fact got you and end up incredibly disappointed. So I'll ask you both now for, I know, Mark, you've given us one already, but I'll ask you for one more thing that's still on your wish list that you wish were instead in the post on its way to you now and Roz will ask you the same question as well so Mike do you want to kick us off on this one thing besides the one you just mentioned that wasn't in the budget that should have been one thing I think I'd really love to see is is I suppose some certainty in the tax system which probably requires some non-political sort of independent body to kind of actually set these rules and have some principles and I'd, I'd kind of like to see some kind of mechanism and process for, for doing that um, so that we can have a long-term um, more stable sort of tax system for pensions. Excellent. And Roz, your offering? Well, thank you to Mike for mentioning the net pay issue where the, the lowest earners are losing out uh, and being forced to pay about an extra 25% for their pension, because that's one that I would have loved seeing. My big disappointment, if you like, is that this is yet another missed opportunity to try and find money for social care. Uh, And indeed, uh, I would have thought that part of uh, pension planning ultimately should include some money for social care. Your pension won't cover your care costs, but maybe finding ways of saving alongside pensions or uh, a portion of your pension that can be withdrawn tax free to be used for care, for example, uh, having care savings plans for the long term somewhere or another. We need to find money for an ageing population that is going to more and more need to be looked after, more and more people. And there is no money set aside. We talk about a pensions crisis, but there is trillions of pounds 
set aside to pay people's pensions in future. There is nothing to meet the costs of future care needs, which for individuals will be a lot higher than a pension income would pay for. Well, as is always the case with social care, there is always next year. Uh, that does bring us to the um, end of the programme. So thank you to Raz and to Mike very much for joining us. Thank you thank to you. listeners for listening. Continue to like and subscribe and share the podcast. And we will see you in two weeks' time. Thank you again for joining us. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.